Before we start up this week's episode, we have a special announcement. Now, James Bond may get his suits tailor-made on Savile Row, but if you want the next best thing, check out our new merch store over at redbubble.com. Just search for Spy Hards or hit the link in the show notes. You'll find everything a suave spy needs from hats and hoodies to pillows and phone cases. Plus, you can grab our first ever t-shirt depicting the superstar of Thunderball himself having the existential crisis and pondering the eternal question, what does Vargas do? So show support for the show and help give Vargas the spotlight he truly deserves. But without further ado, Cam, roll the episode. Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And Cam, I'm curious, why are we here today? Gotcha. <laughs> just just one more time. Gotcha. We're here to talk about 1985's Gotcha. This week you heard us review the film and now we're going to talk to the director. That's right. We have Jeff Canoe, who's the uh, director of this film, talking all about his experience working on this, as well as Revenge of the Nerds and the rest of his filmography. You know, he got to work with Anthony Edwards twice, and, and he's got a lot of stories. So I think without further ado, we'll throw it over to Jeff. Cam, roll the clip. And joining us now is the director of the film we're talking about this week, which is 1985's Gotcha. It is, of course, Jeff Canu. Jeff, thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks for inviting me. Um, well, we have a, a lot of questions about the film, but how we like to do it is kind of get a little bit of information about you first and how you got into the game. So just to start us off, how did you get into directing films? Well, oddly enough, I, I've just finished writing a 300-page memoir, so I'll just send you that. Mm, okay. Perfect. Yep. Read it, you know, on the toilet. Uh, <laughs> how did I get in? Or I, I'll, I'll tend to ramble, so you have to like feel comfortable to say, all right, move, move on, cut sure. it short. Okay, so I was this guy, uh, grew up in the suburbs of New York, no particular direction <clears throat> in anything, except that I wanted to be a, a rock star. And I had a band, and we played at a club in the village one summer and thought we were going to be successful, but we weren't. And then I was in college, and didn't really need to or want to be there. So eventually I got kicked out of there. And a, a friend of mine, a neighbor, gave me, offered me a job working at United Artists Movie Company as a, whatever, an errand boy, gopher. And I really didn't want to take that job. And my mother forced me to. And uh, that became my career, that world, the movie world. And prior to that, all I could think about was music. So I worked in the movie world for a little while. And they made me the assistant to the guy who did trailers for United Artists movies. And so for a year or so, I was working for this guy. And I, I realized making trailers and writing copy is similar to writing stupid doo-wop songs. Hmm. So I was good at it. And that eventually led to me starting a trailer company of my own, a little company, and for 12 years after that, I made a lot of trailers on movies. And I mean, The Graduate and Midnight Cowboy and Rocky and Cuckoo's Nest and a lot of, a lot of stuff like that. I got lucky. And I had a certain ability to do that work, which was kind of a combination of copywriting and editing and just having a sense of whatever rhythm. Mm -hmm. But I had a, a, my neurotic package left over from my childhood was I wanted to be famous. And I, I realized that making trailers, even though I was making nice money, I was never going to get famous because I went to the Academy Awards the night uh, when, a, when Cuckoo's Nest won all those awards and I had done the trailer. And I was at this party afterwards and somebody came up to me and said, what did you do on the movie? And I said, oh, I, I made the trailer. And they said, what do you mean you made the trailer? I thought the projectionist just shows some scenes from the upcoming films. What did you do? And I realized, okay, I'm never going to be famous from doing trailers because they just think I'm this guy who chops up a movie and somebody shows it. 
Mm-hmm. So that sort of lit the fire in me that I had to go and try and actually be a filmmaker in order to get noticed. And a couple of years later, I found a script, or not a script, but a book, and I adapted it and I made a movie and it was a disaster. And then I made another one and that didn't do too well. Uh, and in, the, in between there, I got to edit a, a movie called Ordinary People. So that was a big help to my career. And then yeah. the, the third time out, a friend of mine, because the movie business is completely political, a friend of mine became head of production at 20th Century Fox. And he called me up and he said, okay, I got this great job. I'll probably only be here for a year before they fire me. But while I'm here, I can give my friends jobs. So he sent me several scripts. Uh, one was kind of, uh, was a really stupid thing called Give Me an F, which was about cheerleader camp. And one was Bachelor Party, which I thought was just okay. And the third one was this ridiculous title thing called Revenge of the Nerds. And I wasn't even going to read it because I was a New York snobby guy at that point. And I thought that sounds really stupid. But then he's the only guy who was sending me anything. So I read it and I connected to it. I felt like, oh, my God, I get this. This is about feeling like the alien, like the outsider. And I ended up getting that job, directing Revenge of the Nerds. And suddenly I was uh, an, an employable guy in the business. And the so very next project that I, that I read was this script called Gotcha. And right. And so, was, so I've got a couple quick questions I want to ask, just in terms sure. of kind of your journey there. So a couple things. You were working on trailers for United Artists as well as independently. I was curious, we are a spy movie podcast. If you did any Bond trailers around that time. I kept waiting and waiting to get to do a Bond trailer. And it finally came to me, not, not my favorite Bond movie, but it was uh, the, the Man with the Golden Gun. I got to do that. And after that, I got to do The Spy Who Loved Me. Oh, wow. Uh, and that was, that was my Bond trailers. I didn't, I, the trailers, for some reason, I, I, was, I wasn't the action guy. I was the guy who did dialogue movies mostly. So I, I never got to do some of that fun stuff. Right. Okay. And then I want to jump over just quickly to Ordinary People. You edit that film. That is a really remarkable movie. I was, I'm just curious if that was ever a consideration for you of following, you know, kind of continuing to edit movies kind of in that sort of prestige kind of realm. Well, uh, there's an honest story I can tell about that. Should I do it? Sure. Okay. It all has to do again with personality disorder. Uh, I had known Robert Redford because I did trailers for Jeremiah Johnson and uh, Three Days of the Condor and stuff on all, all the candidate, all the president's men. So we had this relationship. And after I directed my first actual movie and I couldn't find distributor for it, I got a call from Redford. Uh, he wanted to watch the movie because he wanted to look at Hal Holbrook, who was the star, to see if Hal should play the lead in Ordinary People. And I sent him the film and sometime later he called me back and he said he watched the movie and it was, he really thought it was good. And that was the first nice thing anybody had said about that movie. So <laughs> I was, I responded and, uh, and I had been the editor as well as the director of that movie. And he said, I thought it was really well edited. And without really realizing I was about to say this, I said, Hey, if you're planning on, uh, cutting ordinary people because i know you're about to direct it if you're planning on cutting it in new york i have a great editor for you and he said really who and i said me and he said but i thought you were trying to be a director and i said yeah i was but i'd love to be the editor of your movie so he said okay so now i'm the editor of ordinary people until i get a call from the producer uh he's and he says who, who is this jeff canoe and i said yeah and he goes who the fuck are you I go, well, I, I, what do you mean? He goes, we have the opportunity to work with Sam Osteen, who cut The Graduate and Rosemary's Baby. What the fuck is Redford hiring you for? I said, I don't know, but I just told him I'd like to do it. And he said, OK. And he said, well, what's your rate? I said, oh, I don't really have a rate because I, I never cut a movie for anybody else. <laughs> and he said, Jesus Christ. And he gave me some figure and and, and he and I ended up friends and, and we had an it was an amazing, lucky experience for me to work on that movie. And after that, I had a lot of credibility from from that I didn't have from 
trailers and I didn't have from directing my own failed movies. And suddenly I was uh, the guy who cut ordinary people and people were offering me movies to direct. But I, I realized that, and this is, you know, one of the things that, that may have been a mistake in my life. I really want to be the director. I like being the, the prime mover and I, I like, you know, getting to execute my vision or whatever and direct and editing is it's collaborative, but you always have to serve the director and his tastes and his wants. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess I, there was something about that process, even though I had a great time with Redford largely because he didn't like being in the cutting room. So I, I had a lot of freedom and it was, I, I just should have probably repeated it and, and taken one of those offers. But instead I thought, no, 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 I want to get back to my own movies because you know, that's what I've decided to do with my life. So I, I could have done a couple of other movies and didn't. And then I, in fact, there's an editor named Paul Hirsch who cut Star Wars and a whole bunch of things. Mm-hmm. And he and I went to college together, not close friends, but we knew each other. And I was at some kind of a reunion, uh, even though I was a dropout. I don't know why I was invited to this thing, but <laughs> he was there and we saw each other and said hello. And he said, didn't you love you know, editing that movie? And I said, well, I love the movie and I, I loved you know, how it came out. But I really didn't like having to, you know, subjugate my, whatever, my, my opinions to somebody else. And he said, oh, I love making the director happy. And I thought, I guess I, this is not the job for me. So that's, right. I never did it again. Okay, well, um, you know, and you touched on doing Revenge of the Nerds. I'm just really curious about that one because... Revenge of the Nerds is a movie that there's a lot of campus comedies around this time, you know, in the wake of Animal House. But right. I would say, you know, looking back, very few of them had characters that endured. What do you think it was, you know, about Revenge of the Nerds? Is it, you know, the cast, the script, the combination of the two? Like, what was it about that movie that has allowed it to have this sort of legacy while so many movies that were made around that time have all faded away? Uh, well, it certainly was the cast and, mm-hmm. and the script was certainly the basis of it. Um, it could have been a cartoon if, if certain decisions weren't made. And one of the decisions was, uh, well, I'll, I'll just tell you the story. And again, you can always stop me and say you're, that you're rambling. <laughs> when I was called by my friend to come out and have a meeting on Revenge of the Nerds, he said, uh, the producers don't even want to meet with you because they've seen your other movies and they think you have no sense of humor. <laughs> but I'm going to force them to meet with you. So I flew out and I met with them and I guess I did a good tap dance in that meeting and I got the job. I went back to New York and I didn't know what the response was. And my friend, the head of the studio calls and he goes, how did it go with, with the, uh, the nerds producers? And I said, I think it went well. We were last, we were together several hours and I just got the sense that we were all on the same page and I think it went well. And then he said, you made one mistake. I said, oh, what was that? He said, you said Risky Business was a better movie than Animal House. Hmm. I said, well, it is. I mean, Animal House is funny and it was a big hit, but Risky Business is a better movie. And he said, what kind of a movie are you going to make this time? And I said, I'm going to make the best movie that I can from this script, but I want it to be real characters and not a cartoon. And he said, what kind of a movie are you going to make? I said, I know what you're trying to get me to say, I'll make Animal House, sir. But I, I can't say that. I said, but I'll tell you this. I was teaching a class at, actually at Columbia and I had to take off several days from class to go out and do that interview. And what I told my class was, I'm flying out to LA to interview for the job of directing a stupid teenage comedy. He said, now, now we're talking. <laughs> I said, I'll tell you what, how about if I make a movie that I'm ashamed to put my name on? He says, you've got the job. <laughs> and that's that's how I got the job. But my feeling was, you know, I, I could tell reading the script that if you made choices that were big and broad and, and not about the characters, but about the eyeglasses and the short pants, it's going to be a different movie. And all of the actors that I chose also had real hesitation about being in this movie for the same reason. Mm-hmm. Carradine didn't want to do it. Anthony Edwards didn't want to do it. Booger didn't want to do it. I, I spoken to him recently. He, he wrote a book in which he talked about how 
the last thing in the world he wanted to play was Booger, but his agent kind of forced him into it. So right. Tim Busfield, the same thing. So we were all there based on this script and ready to do, do the belching contest and whatever, but we wanted it to be real human beings that people could relate to and root for and not just people to laugh at. So that was, I guess, the joint collaborative decision that made that movie better than it could have been or than it might have been. And uh, then I got a call to do the sequel and I read the script and it was the same movie again. The beginning, the nerds were geeky guys who nobody liked. And I said, well, wait a minute, we already made a movie where they gained self-esteem and they gained acceptance. So we can't put them back down into the toilet again. We have to go for, go on from there. And they said, we start shooting in July. Yes or no. So I said, no. Right. So I didn't do the sequel anyway a long-winded version of that. No, no, I'm really interested in that one because Revenge of the Nerds had a real impact on me when I was young. That was a definitely a perennial one that my sister and I hopped back to all the time and uh, not the case for Revenge of the Nerds too. So you definitely did something right with the first one. Yeah, well, thank you. I mean, yeah, it, it was just, you know, I don't know what the word is. It was just sort of like a, a harmonic convergence of the, the right people, at the right time, and I guess the world was ready for it. And I mean, it certainly we went, we went to, we were shooting at the University of Arizona, or planning to shoot there, and we were all ready to go. And I got a call saying the school, somebody at the school just read the script, and they feel it's it's uh, denigrating to the Greek system, you know, that it's that fraternities and sororities, and they're not they're thinking of not letting you shoot there. So I had to go down with. Ted Field, the producer, and Bobby and Anthony. And we had to make a pitch to the Greek council at the University of Arizona to let us shoot there. And I got up and I made this speech and I said, you know, I really related to this script and I, we're making this about you know, real people, et cetera, et cetera. And frankly, even though there are some raunchy things in it, I would let my kids, I had little kids at the time, I would let my kids see this movie. Mm -hmm. And the fraternity guy said, yeah, you're fine. The sorority girl said, what about we've got Bush? And I said, oh, yeah, that. <laughs> I said, look, yeah, I know. I guess maybe that's offensive, but it's, you know, it's, it's just a joke. Anyway, they just tortured me for about 20 minutes and then they said, okay. <laughs> well, you're talking about you know, having the right people in the right place uh, to get that film made. And I suppose if we get a pivot on to Gotcha, one of those people is Anthony Edwards. Yes, and, and the transition there, or the non-transition, whatever, I really, I loved Bobby, I loved Anthony, and, and I, when I read Gotcha, I saw him in it, because they call the guy Bambi, and he's an innocent, and, and Anthony has that quality, even though he's really smart and sarcastic and hardly that at all, but that's what he comes, that's what he portrays on screen. So I wanted to do that movie with him. And I also thought, wow, I can shoot a movie in Paris and Berlin and L.A. That's so great. Just sort of clarify, did you meet Anthony through Revenge of the Nerds or was it, did you know him before yes. that? It was a cast no, Revenge of the Nerds. Okay. didn't know him before. He came in, he read, he didn't want to do it. I, I, that made me want him more. And I got him. And, and we had a, he's, he's a really good actor and a really funny guy. And so I really like working with him. And I just could picture that casting for Gotcha. But I got a call from the studio. Oh, and meanwhile, my friend was right. He got fired after a year. And by the time I was about to do Gotcha, he's no longer the head of the studio. <laughs> yeah. And the new studio people uh, call me in and they say, uh, what do you think about Tom Cruise for Gotcha? I said, oh, you can't do that. I mean, it's about a guy who's a weird gen, a guy who's you know never gotten laid. We've all watched Tom Cruise fuck Rebecca De Mornay, you know, Six Ways from Sunday, he can't play a virgin anymore. They said, why not? I said, because it would be no good. It would, it would ruin the movie. What about Johnny Depp? I said, he's too weird. I, I, he, was, he had just done Nightmare on Elm Street. He was, he's good, but I, I didn't see it. And I, I, I was gonna fight for Anthony. Then the new head of the studio said, well, you know what? We're gonna put this in turnaround. We don't wanna do the movie anymore. So they put it in turnaround and it went over to Universal. So I went to Universal and got there and they said, yeah, we really like the script and we like nerds and we're ready to go. 
Um, what do you think about this actor, Craig Sheffer? Who okay. had, he, he was around at the time. He was in The River Runs Through It and something else. Kind of a good looking guy. I said, yeah, but I really want to do it with Anthony Edwards. So they made me test Anthony and Craig Sheffer. And I brought both tests over there and they called in a bunch of secretaries. And they said, watch these two tests and tell us who you think should star in this movie. This, this really happened. And they show the two tapes to the two secretaries and all of them voted for Anthony because they felt he was sort of somebody you wanted to take care of. He was kind of vulnerable and Craig was tougher and just not somebody that you, that you needed to, to mother. So Anthony got it and that was great for me. You know, Linda Fiorentino's character says in the film, she she likes little, little boys, I think it was yeah. the line. So he yeah. has to have that innocence to him. So I think yeah. that was yeah. the, the, definitely the best choice. But speaking of Linda then, because we've got Anthony in the role now, we found out how he came to be. Um, what about casting Linda Fiorentino? There's a story. Uh, in the original script, the, the character of Sasha was actually a Czechoslovakian female spy. Hmm. And so I was looking at European actresses to play this. And I left one, one Anthony beat out, which is at one point Universal said, what about Matthew Modine? And I looked at him and I thought, yeah, he kind of looks right, but I don't know his work. So I went to the editing room where they were doing Vision Quest and I watched some scenes of Matthew Modine and I wasn't impressed with him, but whoever that girl was in that movie, she just, I thought she was new and, and exciting but she's American and that was Linda. And I went to New York to cast some smaller roles in the film. And I asked the casting director, could you bring Linda Fiorentino? I just want to meet her. So she came in and I said, I could see you playing this part, but it's a Czechoslovakian woman. Do you think you could play a Czechoslovakian? She says, I don't know. I'll, I'll go talk to my dialect coach and I'll come back in a couple of days and I'll read it. So she did that and she came back in, sounded exactly the way Sasha sounds in the movie. But now I was chickening out. I was thinking, oh my God, if the, this press knows it's an American actress faking being a Czechoslovakian, they're gonna talk about that and they're gonna say she's no Meryl Streep and blah, blah, blah. So then I thought, all right, but if we change the ending so that it turns out she's not really a Czechoslovakian, she's really faking that, and she's really American, then it's all okay. So in the end, she loses her accent, and he says, what happened to your accent? Who are you? And she goes, you, you're not Sasha Banachek. She goes, no, I'm Cheryl Brewster. And you're not from Prague? He goes, no, I'm from Pittsburgh. And then they get chased all over the campus in the movie. Ends. So, so no one ever complained about her fake accent in the movie. And she was great. Yeah, I mean, I really admire the chemistry between the two because I think, you know, the power dynamic is so much in her side and you wonder if this could play a little awkward on screen, but I thought, like, she did a lot to bridge that gap. Like, there's a real maturity to that character, but you can also kind of buy the fondness between the two. Yeah, and I think that has something to do with whatever that quality is that Anthony radiates because you know he's intelligent uh, and, and a good soul and... Back then, before he went bald, his hair was really golden and cute. And I, yeah, I found myself, I just believed what went on between them. One of the, one of the good things or the things that attracted me to the script of Gotcha was that there was a kind of a last tango in Paris montage in the middle of this movie where she deflowers him in Paris. And I thought, that's the, that's the reason I'm making this movie. I love that scene. And that scene is barely in the movie now because when we previewed it, the audience who had been laughing for a half hour were not interested in all of a sudden looking at something sexy. So we ended up cutting that way, way, way down. So my favorite scene in the movie is not in the movie, but, but that was a big selling point for me to do that scene because I thought I could show a side of me that was more visual and interesting and whatever. But uh, Linda and, and, and Tony, they got along great. And uh, we all did. It was, it, it was, there is something about when, when all the people are comfortable with each other and they're cast right and they're talented. That it, I think that's how the best movies come about.
You may have slightly answered it with having that scene cut down, but I mean, this film has a comedic side to it. It also has the spy thriller and it has a romance in there too. Did you find those themes hard to juggle? Uh, I didn't at all until the preview audiences got uncomfortable with the, the sensual moments. But no, they, they never had a problem transitioning from the comedic opening to the spy movie. I, I, they, they never questioned that in any of the previews. It didn't bother anybody to make that transition. And again, I, I think it's because we were, even though we were making silly moments at the beginning, we were trying to keep it real. So when, when it got real for Anthony, you know, he, I mean, he wasn't expecting to have this adventure and then it just happens to him. And the audience, I think, identifies and goes along with it. Well, you know, I'm glad you bring up how real it feels because that was one thing that kind of surprised me. I'd never seen this movie until we went to, um, you know, review it for the for the podcast. And um, I kind of went in expecting something maybe a little more, you know, kind of goofy. And I was actually surprised how seriously a lot of the spy elements were taken. And, you know, you have that scene where Linda Fiorentino is being held and being stripped. And I was like, wow, this is a you know, you're dealing with this in a more dramatic fashion than what I would have expected. Were you going into it? Were you looking to have these espionage elements taken more seriously and also perhaps influences in terms of the vision of what this, you know, these sorts of uh, spy stories would be? Uh, I, well, I definitely, you know, it's, it was a similar dynamic for me as nerds, which is, yes, it's a comedy, but I wanted to feel like real life. And yes, this has a, a woman gets shot in the back and falls into his arms. And, you know, th th there's real danger. And, and right up until the end, you want to feel that there's, they're in real serious jeopardy. So it was, again, that feeling that it, it's good to be funny, but you need to keep it real. So, and, and as far as other spy movies, I don't, I don't think I, I mean, I know I've watched a lot of them, but I didn't sit down and study other people's spy movies. I was pretty much, you know, shooting the scenes I'm not sure how to how to articulate this. Uh, it's just the way I saw them, you know, from my own growing up watching lots of different movies, and I, I, I sort of had that cataloged, I guess. And we're we're all copycats, you know. So I don't think I in, reinvented the wheel on any of it, except maybe having him jump off this wall into the moat. But uh, and. You know, but then he gets into the back of this van with these musicians and, and he gets his face painted weirdly. And there was always this kind of crazy duality of of the, the silliness and madness and real danger. So that that's, I guess, part of what I wanted the movie to be. Well, pivoting over maybe from from the thematics more to the practicalities of filming it. Uh, one of the things that surprised me with this film, and I was watching it for the first time as well, is just how sprawling it is. I mean, you're in LA and then you're in Paris and then you're in uh, Berlin at the yes. height of the, well, the, towards the end of the Cold War and definitely east and west. But the wall was still up. Yeah. So how was that? I mean, the Berlin is probably the hardest one I would have thought, but it, it, what was it like filming in those locations? I, it was not hard at all. I mean, there's crew there uh, and they were good. Um, I had a really good line producer, the same guy that line produced uh, nerds with me, Peter McGregor Scott, who was a Brit. And uh, he's was really good at finding the right crew. And he, he, he always paved the way for everything that we shot. And the, the only difficulty was we, we couldn't shoot in East Berlin. Mm. Uh, but they let us come over and like look around to, to, to see what it looked like. Um, and then we had, we had to try to get their permission. So we had to rewrite the script, a dummy version of the script to give to whoever the authorities were in East Berlin, where the villain was an, a rogue CIA agent instead of a, a Russian agent. Uh, but they still said no. And so then we had to find East, we had to sort of create East Berlin in West Berlin, but there's a Turkish section that looks very much like East Berlin. So that's where we shot. So we, it, once we had that, th there was really no problem. Now, I'm curious about the script um, by Dan Gordon. Um, was there a lot of changes made through production? Like, was there, a, you know, improvis improvisation going on? Or was the script a pretty strong blueprint right from the get-go? Well, the script, was, the script was strong enough that when I read it, I wanted to do it. Mm -hmm. And when Anthony read it, he wanted to do it. 
when it moved from uh, Fox to Universal, they had a lot of notes. And Dan Gordon refused to do their notes. So they right. said, all right, he's gone. Get us somebody to do a rewrite or we're not going to go forward with the movie. Peter McGregor Scott uh, knew a, a writer or, or an up and coming writer. And they, they weren't giving us a lot of money to do this rewrite. And Peter said, let, let me give it to this guy, Steve Cronish, and he'll do a rewrite over the weekend. And I said, come on, that, that's not possible. He said, no, this guy's very fast. He's very good. And they paid him $1,500 to rewrite the script. And it was addressing all the studio's questions and notes. And I mean, it wasn't, they, it didn't change the plot. Uh, it didn't, you know, remake the, the, the story, but a lot of these things were character things and questions they had and whatever. And we turned in Steve's draft and they immediately said, go. So he stayed with us, came to Europe with us and he stayed with us and whatever rewriting we did over there. And I honestly, I can't pinpoint what was new and what was old. The, the essence of it was the same, but a lot of the dialogue and the details were, were new things. Hmm. Now, I'm always curious about studio notes. I'm just wondering if you have any examples of maybe a good note they gave you and then maybe one that stood out as maybe a really bad one. Uh, you know, the, the majority of the notes, I, I, I don't even remember what they were. The one moment that comes to mind when you ask me that is there's a scene in the, in the movie uh, when he's back in L.A. and he's driving up whatever Pico Boulevard and all of a sudden this mysterious vehicle pulls up behind him and he's positive that it's Vlad, the, the uh, you know, the guy who was chasing him in, in Europe. And so he tries to outrun him and then, then he ends up cutting the guy off and smashing his car into another vehicle on the side of the road. And then the cops arrest Anthony and he gets arrested. Um, and we that, shot that scene and seemed to work fine. But the way that I first shot it, the man driving to when the audience, when he, when Anthony looked over, it was clearly not the same actor that we had with us in, in Russia. And I thought, I guess I justified it that, this, you know, it's one of this guy's, compadres you know it's his la you know whatever guy so i didn't completely black out the windows and frank price the head of the studio said i want you to reshoot that shot of anthony's point of view of the car window because you can see that it's not the right guy and i said but yeah but that guy's going to jump out of his car at the end and he's going to say this kid screwed up my car he said it doesn't matter i'd like the audience to really believe that it's vlad sitting there so i said okay so we reshot it and it was way better, you know, yeah. because it was good not to know that it wasn't the guy until you really know. So they were, they were very good partners. I didn't get a lot of crappy notes from those people. That's, that's awesome to hear. You mentioned earlier that your, your favorite scene was the one that was cut down quite heavily. Um, is there another particular scene you could point to that did make the final cut that you're particularly proud of something in the film? That did make it? Or did make it. I did make it. I was particularly proud. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I just, I run the film in my head quickly and like there are all these things that I feel really good about. I don't think there was, you know, there wasn't, other than that, I mean, the idea that we had the chase on campus and that worked fine. And uh, the scenes with the parents worked fine. And the scenes with Manoa, maybe the car, the, the, the car thing, where uh, Manolo and his guys, uh, Anthony is told to meet uh, Linda at this place called El Mercado. And then he gets chased uh, by the CIA guys that are following him. And the, uh, the, the homeboys in their cars stop the, the CIA guys in an, in an alley and they, they, they pull out their badges and Manolo says, we don't need no stinking badges. And that was a fun scene that uh, came out just, just the way I wanted it to. And that's, that pops into my head. Everything else was just, you know, being, doing a good job executing what was in the script. But that scene had more, a little more of my stuff in it. Well, I would love to ask about the cult, the band that shows up you referenced earlier. I thought that was an incredibly memorable sequence. And had a little bit of that Revenge of the Nerds energy where 
in a different, you know, filmmaker's, you know, hands, that scene could have played as a joke on the band members. And I walked away from the movie really digging them and almost wishing we had a spin-off movie just chronicling their adventures because they seem so fascinating. Yeah, they were cool. Uh, yeah, and they didn't, they weren't a band. They were three actors from, from Berlin who got the part. And they, mm-hmm. you know, the, the makeup person did a great job. The hair person did a great job. And uh, yeah, they, and again, there again, I mean, they just somehow, and I'll, I'll maybe take credit for just letting the people play it the way their instincts told them to play it, but I didn't want them to go any further than they, I wasn't trying to push them into any kind of a, of a over the top caricature of these guys. I mean, they, they were just guys who had the, that makeup and hair, but they were interested in Dallas, you know, and they were, and they were you know, when she says, Jonathan, you know, uh, uh, you have your papers? And he says, you know, I mean, it's just, it's just, it was just real. It just, it was because of the van and because of the way they looked, it looked like it might be something crazy over the top, but it was just three people who giving a guy a ride. Yeah, like the comedy is much more grounded in the situation than making fun of the characters, which I really appreciated. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I if, if I have any, you know, I wouldn't say style, it's going too far, but I, I prefer to do that, you know, to just let everybody be real people and not a joke. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, even, I... even, nerds, even, you know, John Goodman's character in Nerds, uh, he's very funny. And John did that character really well, but he's not he's not played for laughs. He's he's a prick. <laughs> <laughs> and next to David Wall, who's the dean, who's this kind of wimpy guy, that relationship works really well and gets gets laughs. But everybody's just playing it straight, really. The last question I had for for Gotcha was I read in terms of uh, trivia that the Zitadel Spandau, which is the, the Citadel you filmed at, was yes. actually the, the real place, and you actually jumped into the real moat. Was that was that correct? And you know, was that difficult to set up? Uh, you'd have to ask Peter McGregor Scott. We we looked at it. We said this would be great, and we had it. The only part of it that was even the slightest problem was there's a bridge that he runs across after he comes out of the moat before he meets the guys in, in the van and he's wet and coming running across this bridge. And it turned out that the bridges, they were the locks on the canal were partly controlled by East Berlin. And so we had to go back to them again with the script and say, remember, you're not the bad guys. And they let us let him run across that bridge. Uh, but yeah, it was the real place. And you know, the, uh, piece of filmmaking trickery which is i guess okay to say the the catacombs underneath that place are not that extensive but we just had him run up and down the same hallway many 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 times and as long as we cut away and then cut back to him it looked like he was running through this whole cavernous place but it was really pretty small but it was it was the real location and again every every place we wanted to shoot in berlin was never a problem now, uh, my last question about Gotcha is in regards to the paintball. I feel like you were at the uh, ahead of the craze there in you know showing paintball on screen. How much awareness was of paintball at this point in time? Uh, well, coincidentally, I was a paintball player before I was ever offered this script. Nice. Uh, I used to play back east in uh, in uh, up in Brewster, New York. There was a game. And then we, we started playing out in L.A. Uh, but the, but it, it was just getting little press things about these crazy people that run around shooting each other with paintballs. So it, it became much bigger after the movie. Right. Yeah, because I was a very avid paintballer when I was younger as well. So I'm always excited to see it on screen. And, uh, you know, you beat James Bond to it. I think they did it three years later or something or two years later. So congratulations there. Oh, thank you. now i wanted to um pivot over to a movie that was very important to my sister growing up and that is troop beverly hills and that movie i think was uh, heavily played like say dirty dancing or grease in our house and i was just really curious about the relationship you had working on that film with shelly long who at that point was you know coming off of cheers and starring in a number of um comedy showcases uh well actually we had a great relationship 
She's very good. It was, it was kind of like working with Lucille Ball. She just knows how to be that character. Um, I, sorry, I, I, this is going to be one of those long-winded things again. I was originally sent that script. It was called Be Prepared. It was about the same basic script. And I thought, yeah, it's cute, but yeah, I don't know. What, Girl Scouts, I don't know. It's, it didn't make me laugh that much. I just thought it was nice. So I passed. Then I got involved in other projects, one of which was called Dead Poets Society, which was a script that I read as a writing sample. And then nobody wanted to make that movie. And I got four studios to read it. And they all, all three of them passed. And the fourth one was Disney. And they said, well, we'll we don't think it's commercial, but we'll make it if you do it for really little money. So I was now being the director of Dead Poets. And without going through all of the stuff, there was a casting question in which uh, Disney and I disagreed on who should play the teacher. They rejected Liam Neeson and Alec Baldwin who had auditioned for it. And they asked me why didn't I want to use Danny DeVito, David Letterman, Albert Brooks or Mel Brooks to play the teacher. And I thought we're not making the same movie. Uh, and then there was an incident with Robin Williams where he would, I thought he would have been good and he wanted to do it, but his manager, in the studio's words, his manager has a problem with you, meaning me. And I never found out what that was, but Robin wouldn't do the movie with me. Still, I was, I was not off the picture and I thought, okay, they want us to make this little low budget movie, which originally was clearly not gonna have a lot of big names. I mean, Ethan Hawke was nobody. Uh, they were all gonna be new people. But they really wanted a name for the teacher. And so I sent the script to Jack Nicholson, Harrison Ford, and Dustin Hoffman. Jack said no. Harrison never responded. Dustin Hoffman, I got a call one day saying, Dustin's person, whoever that is, read the script and loves it. Dustin's going to read it tomorrow. That day went by. Uh, I got a call from Michael Eisner, who never calls me. And he said, uh, listen, Dustin read the script. He loves it. He wants to do it. And I said, that's great. And he said, but he wants to direct it. To, to end the story, uh, I was fired and Dustin was the director for a short time. Then he decided to do Rain Man. Then they went back to Robin Williams. And I at this point, I was realizing that I don't have much clout in the business if I'm that easily fired. So I got to have a hit because Gotcha wasn't a hit. Mm -hmm. and I had I, I remembered oh a friend called me and said hey my, my friend was a writer he said you know the director just left uh, a movie over that called Be Prepared uh, to come and do our movie which was called The Dream Team with Michael Keaton and I thought that was Howard Zeef and he's a pretty smart guy so if he was going to do this Girl Scout movie maybe I should do that Girl Scout movie so I threw my hat back in the ring and I got hired now to do what became Troop Beverly Hills and they had Shelley Long. So, you know, it was like, I wasn't the, probably the best choice, uh, but I really wanted it and I wanted it to work. And, and I had an audition for Shelley and we got along and, you know, I, I did a good job casting the girls and then there was a writer's strike and the writers, there were a lot of rewrites that we did and the writers wouldn't do it. So we had to do it ourselves. And the movie, I, I was pretty happy with the way the movie came out. Uh, it died at the box office when it first opened. And somehow women found it over the years and it became this thing that, I mean, the Kardashians had a Troop Beverly Hills baby shower and there are occasional screenings around the country called the Troop Beverly Hills Experience where women get together. And it's a little bit like Rocky Horror. They know all the lines and they shout them at the screen. And it became this thing, which I'm happy to be part of. Yeah, in our house, it was because it was shown on TV a lot. And it was one that, you know, we taped off the television. And my sister just, I think it was played at almost every sleepover. You know, that there sort of go. thing. There yeah. you go. Um, I wanted to jump over as well and just talk about your relationship with Kirk Douglas, who, you know, obviously a legend of Hollywood. You did a couple of movies with him as well as a documentary. 
I would just love to know about that, you know, working relationship. And was there, you know, more of a per, uh, personal relationship that was forged just doing, you know, tough guys and Eddie and uh, Eddie Macon's run? Yeah, well, no, absolutely. I mean, he, Eddie Macon's run, you know, I had grown up watching Kirk Douglas, Burt Lancaster and loving those actors. Um, when we were doing Eddie Macon's run, the producer said, there was this, the part of, was sort of the villain, but not really in Eddie Macon's run. He wanted me to use Kirk Douglas. And I was trying to go with like Peter Boyle or Gene Hackman or somebody more of a gritty character guy than a movie star. But I went out and I met with Kirk Douglas and he watched my first movie, which for some reason he liked, and he agreed to do it. So now I have Kirk Douglas to direct. I was a little scared. That was my second movie. You know, I, I was also the writer of that movie. And I thought, oh man, I'm going to be under a lot of pressure. And we had this young actor to play the lead who was also kind of forced on me by the studio, John Schneider. Uh, anyway, so I met with Kirk. He approved me. We're making the movie. Um, he came out to, we were on location in Laredo, Texas, and he started working the second or third week. And one night after shooting, they tell me Kirk Douglas is in town and he wants to meet with you tonight. And he had sent me a number of pages of script notes. And at that point, as both the writer and the director, I thought it's my place to defend the script. So I started going this, through the script notes with Kirk one by one. And uh, each of his notes, I, instead of being smart and saying, hey, that's kind of interesting, let me think about it. I was going, no, I don't want to do this. And I don't want to do this. And I don't think we can do that. No, that would be wrong. And about the sixth note out of about 40, he says, he stops me and he goes, let me tell you something. I've, I've made a few movies and I may not be right all the time, but I'm not wrong all the time either. So why don't you get the fuck out of my hotel room? And he throws, <laughs> me, out, throws me out of his room. But then the next day he sends his driver to get me and he says, Mr. Douglas wants you to ride out to location with him. So I get into his motor home and we're riding out and he says, look, I'm going to talk to you because I took this job because I saw your movie and I thought it was good. And I kind of liked the script and I'm just going to give you a piece of advice because I've produced movies and I've directed movies. You have to make the actors feel like you're listening to them. If you shut the door, you're going to have a problem. I said, yeah, I guess you're right. Um, and he said, okay. He said, so, the scene we're shooting today, it was a scene where Kirk has to come into this house and interrogate a woman in Texas. And she's kind of a blonde, ditzy woman. And his note was, I want to seduce her. I don't want to interrogate her. And I thought he really meant that, like he was going to try to have a hot scene for his character with this woman. And that's the one I said, no, where he threw me out of his room. So I said, well, tell me what you mean by you want to seduce this woman. He says, I don't want to literally seduce her. I want to be seductive in the way I get the information out of her rather than bully her like a cop. I went, oh. And then he explains a little more about it. And we shot the scene his way. And it was much better. And after that, for some reason, he became my teacher a little bit. And, and we got to be good friends. And then we stayed, even though the movie died, we stayed friends over the years. And we did you know, tough guys was a nice bonding thing for us and then after tough guys we didn't work together for a while and but we stayed friends and then later on when when uh i was more available because i i had like a hot streak and then i just kind of blew it in 1991 that's another story but uh kirk would would hire me to write stuff for him or uh, we would work together and then we ended up he asked me to direct the touched by an angel episode that he was going to be in so the producers of touched by an angel said okay and we had a really nice experience working on that and then uh so then he called me and he was offered a picture to do in belarus a holocaust movie and he told the producer who was a german guy uh, that he would do the movie if his friend jeff could direct it and they said okay so kirk got me the touched by an angel job he got me the it was called Bobby Yard. He got me that job. Then, and I was kind of in not in a great career place, trying to just get something to happen. I did a couple of little independent films. And then uh, 
years went by and now Kirk is like 90 years old and wants to do a one man show. And I thought, well, how, I don't really have the energy. And he, and he had written it himself. It was this basically a monologue about his life. And so I directed this for him and you know, built the scenes that would go up on his projected on a screen behind him or whatever. And it was called before I forget. And then it became a DVD at some point, but we just had a great experience. And then some more time went by and we stayed friends and did some, tried to get some movies made together. We couldn't actually exactly make that happen. And then now, so if that, if he was, if he was 92, then he was 101 when he called me again. And he had written a book of where he'd taken all the love letters that he and his wife exchanged in 1954, five and six, when they first met. And he, he made a book out of it and with photographs and these really eloquent, beautiful letters. So this book got published and that year, uh, Hugh Jackman, oh, and Kirk, had, Kirk had, I'm sorry, Kirk had called me and said, I want to try to make a stage thing out of my book of the love letters. And I want my grandson and granddaughter who are actors to read it. So we did, we did a reading that way and I videoed it and it was not bad. And the, the theater still was not excited about the project because it was Kirk Douglas's book and it was Kirk Douglas's children. And, but then Hugh Jackman read this book and was about to get the Kirk Douglas award at the Santa Barbara Film Festival. And he called Kirk's office and said, has anybody thought of doing a staged reading of Kirk's love letter book? And the assistant said, yeah, in fact, we have a script. And he read the script and he said, I want to do it. So a couple of months later, when he got off tour, I now I'm directing my second theatrical thing, Hugh Jackman, one night only, he and his wife reading the Kirk Douglas love letters. That, and so we did that. And that, that was kind of like the last thing I did. <laughs> it, was, I don't, it was a couple of years ago. Well, it's a but, really so cool Kirk, evolution, and, though, and, yeah, of a, of a uh, relationship. Yeah. Yeah, and I, you know, I learned a lot from the guy. I really did. Well, um, I'm depressed. Go, go, let's oh, go. Yeah, I, I, I can pick it up a bit. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> um, well, you know, as I say, we're conscious of your time, and so what we do at the end of our interviews is a couple of quick fire spy questions because we do spy movies every week. So, should we go sure. for that? Well, first question is, what is your favorite spy film? My, I should have thought about this in advance. My favorite spy film. Uh, it's not. The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. Uh, if you want to take, I mean, if, if, if you want to call James Bond a spy, which I guess he is, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. From Russia With Love. Nice. I love From Russia With Love. Um, and that, but I'm trying to go out of that mode. Uh, and I can't, you know, is, is, is uh, Red October, that's not really a spy film. That's, that's, that's. It counts. It has a very heavy espionage element, so I would say so. Yeah, and plus Jack Ryan's in it. Yeah, right, right. So I, I, I like that movie a lot. Um, so that's, that's, what, that's all I can. That's all I can come up with at the moment. If you if you gave me five to look at, I'd be able to pick one. <laughs> no, that's fair. I mean, those are two great picks for sure. Well, the next question actually is more of a Bond-related question. Maybe we've answered it already, but who is your favorite James Bond? Are you seeing me right now? I'm not. You're not okay. Then you don't realize that a guy my age has got to say Sean Connery. <laughs> Without we thought, question, we thought maybe Roger Moore had won you over. You know, you edited a couple of his trailers. You never know. He's cute, but he's not James Bond. In fact, in my in my life, I'm, I'm constantly this. This is maybe spy related, but uh, uh, you get to a certain age and like you talk about really unsexy shit. You know, like like this hurts and that hurts and <laughs> and uh just all, all kinds of weird things and, and that there's this lady that i'm friends with and we have we'll, we'll be in a conversation i mean we were you know we were lovers a couple of years ago and now and we still are but hardly ever and uh and now we're talking and we're having these conversations and i go wait a second i don't think i've ever heard a conversation like this in a james bond movie i never heard sean connery say oh man i don't know i can't pee you know he never said that. money money penny money penny give me the give me the laxative i, I just got to get out of here but i'm sure that they say that at some point you've clearly never seen never say never again that's uh 
burial, <laughs> Sean Connery right some, there. Is, it, is there some of that in there? <laughs> it's it edging kind of plays up to it. the edge. Yeah, he plays with the age thing. It is in the 80s. So. Oh, mm. all right. I could see that movie, but maybe I just blocked it out. That's the one with Kim Basinger? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, the last one I would ask is any other sort of spy literature you read? Do you like spy television shows you like or spy books you read? Anything you, you, you like? Oh, I, 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 I wish I realized that, that I should be up on my spy stuff. I mean, <laughs> I, did, I read all the Bond, Bond novels. I really did okay. back then. Back then. Mm-hmm. Um, and I read, I don't know if it's a spy, the, the one with the, that Diane Keaton played where... Uh, yeah, Little Drummer Girl? That one, yeah, I like that one. You have good taste. Uh, we had Nicholas Meyer on the show, and that's actually his favorite spy story of all time. So you're in good company for sure. There you go. And it's it's also not a spy story, but I really like the movie The Siege with uh, Annette Benning. Yep, she's sort of a spy in that. Yep, okay, that's another. Yeah. Now, one question we had. Um, Considering you have a very, you know, quite significant filmography, and we've touched on a handful of movies, are there any that jump out that people should check out? Ones that maybe don't get the attention of Revenge of the Nerds, you know, gotcha. Films that you're really proud of that you'd like people to just maybe take a second look at. They're out there. They're worth, check, you know, tracking down. Well, I mean, Tough Guys was a really great experience for me with Kirk and Burt. You know, there may not be any interest in those two actors anymore but i think that's a really good solid movie that people should look at uh vi warshawski i got a lot of uh discredit on but uh, i actually like that movie and i think kathleen is great in it mm-hmm. um my first movie natural enemies even my own kids don't watch it <laughs> <laughs> it's too depressing it's really it was called the grimmest reaper ever filmed by rex reed the oh, wow. film critic yeah, it's yeah. about a man who wakes up one morning and realizes that when he gets home that night, he's going to kill himself and his family, and he does. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't advise anybody to watch that one. And then I did a film called Black Rodeo. It's a documentary about an all-black rodeo that Muhammad Ali is in, uh, and that's getting a little uh, notice right now because of whatever. And some people would like that movie. Not everybody. And... Yeah, no. Okay. <laughs> I mean, the, the movie that I did in, in Minsk, which is actually some of the best work that I've ever done, but it was never released anywhere except in Germany and, and on DVD. Uh, so nobody would be able to watch that movie. But that's, it's a Holocaust film and it's, it's, it's a serious movie. In my heart, I always wanted to make serious movies. I didn't want to make you know, comedies. But So I tried to make my comedies more serious. I guess that was me. Yeah. Now, is there anything you're working on or anything people should keep an eye out for? Um, my obituary. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, you know, I'm, I'm so tired of, of the Hollywood way of saying what you're working on when you know you've been working on it for, forever and it's never going to happen, but I have a couple of those. Mm-hmm. I mean, I did a, there was a, there's a book that I adapted. Uh, it was a novel based on, on Lady Macbeth. And it, it took the Macbeths as a couple from their youth all the way to the end of the story where you know, beyond where Shakespeare took it. And they were, if this lady who wrote it, who's a historian is correct, they were actually not villains. And it gives you a whole new look at that relationship and that story. And I thought people would jump on that. That's a miniseries or whatever. But and so I did the adaptation, but I couldn't get anybody to do it. Um, so yeah, I worked on that, and I had something else uh, that that I wrote an adaptation of a, a novel, not a spy novel, but it's kind of a detective story, more in the the mode of the long goodbye. Tried to get that made, that wasn't happening. And my daughter, who's twenty three years old, wrote something as a film student, and I got her to hire me to direct it as a short. Oh, nice! <laughs> so there you go. Awesome. Well, so, yeah. Well, Jeff, I, I just want to thank you for taking the time out. I know you have a busy day ahead of you. So thank you for sitting down with us to talk about Gotcha and, you know, the rest of your filmography. We will leave links to, you know, some of the movies you've mentioned in our show notes as well as people can check those out. But again, Jeff, just thank you. All right. Well, thank you guys. And uh, yeah, I mean, 
you know, I, I have this sort of neurotic self-conscious thing. Like I, I, I must have said 10 different things that were humiliating. Maybe they won't use them. <laughs> no more than That's what fine. we would have said. So it's fine. Yeah. Great. Okay, guys, you're lovely. Okay. Thanks. Well, take care of yourself. Thanks so much. This was awesome. Thank yeah, you, Jeff. Bye-bye. Well, there you go, guys. That is the definitive interview on Gotcha. Yeah, no kidding. This was really exciting to do because you and I both watched Gotcha in advance, like well before reviewing the film to do this interview. And I remember watching the movie and being like, oh, this gives me no shortage of questions because it is a crazy 80s comedy, but there's a lot of thought there. And there's a lot of just odd moments that I think are part of the reason it's so rewatchable now, but also that you just wonder what was the kind of the thought process behind realizing some of those moments. Yeah. And, and, you know, you look at his career, uh, his first job came from being a bit of a, a bit ballsy and getting the editing job on that film, which he then pivoted into a whole career of directing. Like to think that one's career started on a, a little bit of ballsiness and a little bit of luck. That's quite cool. I mean, when you're editing ordinary people, which won the Oscar that year for best picture, I mean, that's, an astonishing story unto itself and what an interesting career and he was a great navigator through it and it was just interesting you know when you look at the evolution of his work because um when you look at movies like revenge of the nerds or gotcha you don't necessarily pick up on the directorial stamp but then you know you look a little closer and just elements like what makes nerds work so well is the you know kind of the team camaraderie of the group of leads of that movie and you see that realized in gotcha in like the band for example who i cite in the interview um you know the punk band that show up so i really enjoy that you can kind of see these connections and what jumps out to him and what's really appealing and how he finds humanity in what could easily be grotesque caricatures and and yeah let's think about some of the scenes in the film like the whole east berlin stuff it had no right to be as intriguing and dark as it was at times this was meant to be a, a fluffy 80s comedy with a spy plot running through it more of an anthony edwards vehicle really um but what we got was a really you know stark look at what east berlin looked like at the time well i like that he never undercuts his own movie like he's someone who's making a comedy he finds the humanity in the characters like that's where the comedy comes from um he doesn't just go for easy gags and basically as you said you know this whole east berlin suspenseful scenario he's not like basically just like making fun of the whole scenario like he's not undercutting the suspense of what the sequence could be he actually cares about the story he's telling and i think that honestly extends as well to the romantic relationship between anthony edwards and linda fiorentino there are so many filmmakers at this time would have taken that exact same material and made it like sleazy or just kind of crass and he doesn't do that and i you know referenced that in the interview that it felt a lot more realistic and played out in a way that it was at least respectful to the actors and characters that just feels almost outside of 1980s um sex comedies but speaking of crass scenes now jeff says his favorite scene in the film was the sex scene between anthony and linda fiorentino that was your favorite scene right well, it was heavily cut down, and much yeah. like my sex scenes, they're very short. <laughs> Speaking of taking your own legs out... There's more, there's more <laughs> weeping, though, in your scenes. <laughs> I love talking to myself in the mirror beforehand. Uh, and after. Uh, yeah, and after. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um... No, but in this era, this the sex scene could have been played as a a, a very crass thing or a very comedic thing. You, I could I could envision shots of like Anthony Edwards and his eyes rolling back, and you know, mm. like being pulled back into the covers and silly stuff like that. Whereas this film is trying to have this serious undertone, and I think that is because of Jeff's uh, directing. Yeah, and he seemed like the perfect person to tackle this material, and that he didn't, you know, take the juvenile approach to it, which. I would have to imagine, had he handed in, like, the juvenile version of this movie, the studio would have been more than happy. They would have been thrilled. They'd be like, perfect, this is exactly what's going to play to teen audiences in this market. I like that it took some chances. It didn't feel like just following the numbers of the time. 
No, absolutely. And, you know, whilst I'm not a fan personally for Adventures of Nerds, I had only recently watched it. I don't have that contextualization of having watched it in the 80s or, or maybe early 90s. Um, I can tell at least in there he's trying to be serious at times. And he's trying to give some, some you know, gravity to the story that is frankly quite ludicrous. And he cares about his characters. And that extends as well. You know, I was really happy to talk about Troop Beverly Hills a movie my sister watched on repeat back in the day. And just to think that this goofy comedy we saw on TV all the time as kids, to hear someone actually break down the thought process behind making the film is just genuinely fascinating to me. It's something that Spy Hearts has rewarded us with that I never expected. Um, when we started doing interviews, you're like, yeah, this is going to be really exciting to talk to people about Bond movies or spy movies they've made. It's sometimes talking about these other works that somehow have touched on our lives that I find incredibly exciting the only other thing I wanted to touch on, just about Jeff's career, is Dead Poet Society. Yeah. Like, having the director's job for Dead Poet Society, we both know that's a fantastic film. Yeah. Okay? And then going to hire Dustin Hoffman, and then Disney agrees to give it to Dustin Hoffman as a director, because that was his caveat for coming on board. And then Dustin drops the film for then them to go back to Robin Williams, who didn't want to work with Jeff in the first place. He then lost that film completely and it ended up doing Troop Beverly Hills which I suppose worked out for him in that sense but you know have the ability to have maybe have worked on Dead Poet Society you know that's a that's a shame yeah and I mean it's a Hollywood story that you hear time and time again we've talked about it when we do behind the scenes on spy movies you know there's various directors or actors attached to these films that dropped out and it creates these what-if scenarios and you do wonder like what is Jeff's career like if he does Dead Poet Society. Like, is he making prestige films for the next, you know, decade or so? Just an interesting alternate universe question. I mean, is there a parallel universe where he directed that film and I last longer than 60 seconds? <laughs> we'll never, ever know. No. Um, speaking of no. 60 seconds, though, or maybe a little bit longer, I think the most fascinating bombshell to come out of this one was to find out that Jeff edited the trailers for The Man with the Golden Gun and The Spy Who Loved Me. I was so excited to discover this. It's not something I knew in advance of going into this interview, but when he mentioned that he was making trailers for United Artists, the little bell went off in my brain, and I'm so glad that uh, I asked the question. Yeah, for the first time ever, your journalist instincts kicked in, and you you actually, like, on the second pivoted to a line of questioning you had not prepared and managed to get that out of him, because he wasn't telling us that. Yeah, I mean, the financial investment of journalism school finally paid off, so... Thank you, professors. You taught me well. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure they're listening. Hi, guys. Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad that we were able to present something to Spy fans. They really did not know. Like, this is something that was kind of an exclusive for us. And again, it's always exciting when those things happen on the show. Yeah, we did sort of say in the gotcha review a couple of days ago that there was a spy connection in this interview. So that that's the one we were pointing towards. And yeah, this isn't even mentioned on the guy's IMDb. Mm -hmm. This is, uh, I mean, we could probably you know get that added if we wanted to. Sure. But yeah, that's that was a, that was a cool gotcha moment. Indeed. Indeed. And the only other thing I had to mention was, uh, you know, he's in good company with Nicholas Meyer being a fan of the Little Drummer Girl. Now, Cam, the listeners and I have to know: Have you read this book yet? No, but I I have a copy. I actually don't have a copy. <laughs> He's keeping us guessing, guys. One day he will read it and tell us what he thinks. But until that point, Cam, what are we doing next week? Yes, we are tackling Taken 3. We are wrapping up the Brian Mills saga. Will it end well? We're going to find out. Yeah, we've actually got our first ever returning guest coming back to talk Taken 3. I won't spoil who it is. Uh, uh, but he has taken on potentially his most impossible mission. Mm. Spoilers. Um, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to watch Taken 3 and join us next week. You can, of course, follow us discreetly on social media at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, gotcha! Gotcha where I want you, it's too late to stop right now, gotcha!